Good evening. Tonight we're going to continue our study through the book of Jeremiah. And as we pick up in chapter 37, once again we find the narrative bouncing around in the timeline. And so it opens during the reign of Zedekiah. Now remember, over the course of Jeremiah's ministry, he's gone through five different kings of Judah, beginning with the good king Josiah, and then Jehoahaz, and then a short reign. Uh, Jehoahaz's reign was short, just a few months, and then Jehoiakim, and then Jehoiachin, whose reign was just a few months, and then finally here, King Zedekiah. Now it's important to remember that Zedekiah was placed on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar to replace Jehoiachin when he was taken into captivity. And so we're during the tail end days of Zedekiah's reign uh, as he has revolted against Nebuchadnezzar uh, and has now put himself in danger of all of Jeremiah's prophecies of the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon uh, in coming true. And so we open in verse 1. Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Kaniah, that's the name for uh, Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he, nor his servants, nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. Now, as often the case, we're given the meaning of the story we're about to read before we've read it. And so the story that follows is to show us how hard-hearted, stubborn, and such a, how poor a listener King Zedekiah was. Notice verse 3. King Zedekiah sent Jechal, the son of Shemaiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. Now Jeremiah was still going in and out among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. A little bit of forewarning there, a little bit of foreshadowing. Um, but notice here, it is Zedekiah who reaches out to Jeremiah and says, Please pray for us. Verse 5, The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. So Babylon is wrapped around the city of Jerusalem. And Egypt comes to aid Jerusalem, and that causes Babylon to back off. And so it looks like in this passage, before this has happened, Zedekiah asks for Jeremiah's prayers, and then suddenly all of the danger is removed. It's taken away. And so Jeremiah has a message for the king, verse 6. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. Thus, you sh thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, thus you shall say to the king of Judah, who sent, to me, uh, sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt, to its own land, and the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. For even if you should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who were fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. And so Jeremiah tells the king, Don't be mistaken here. This retreat is only temporary. Babylon will return. And you can continue to fight and to struggle and to resist. But even if you take out every man in their army and they're all living in the medical tent, still Jerusalem will burn. It is inevitable. It has been Jeremiah's prophecy for, for generations now that this is coming. Verse 11, now when the Chaldean army had withdrawn from Jerusalem, at the approach of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah set out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his portion there among the people. Now we remember just a few chapters ago, Jeremiah was offered by one of his relatives to buy some family property in the land of Benjamin. Um, but that was during the siege, and so he bought it sight unseen, and now he's headed out of the city to Benjamin to see it. But notice what happens in verse 13. When he was at the Benjamin gate, a sentry there named Arijah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Haniah, 
seized Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You are deserting to the Chaldeans. And Jeremiah said, It's a lie. I'm not deserting to the Chaldeans. But Arijah would not listen to him. And he seized Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. And the officials were enraged at Jeremiah. And they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary, for it had been made a prison. And so on his way out of the city, he's accosted by Arijah. Arijah accuses him of defecting to Babylon. And to be fair, that's an understandable interpretation of the facts. Because Jeremiah had been prophesying publicly, calling for Jerusalem to surrender to Babylon. That Babylon would win the war. And so the assumption is that Jeremiah is actually a mole not really working in Israel's behalf, not really a true Judean, but a Babylonian plant to stir up uh, defection, to weaken the resolve of the armies. And so since he sees him leaving Jerusalem, he thinks, ah, this is the place where Jeremiah disappears. And as you can see, the officials, they eat the story right up. There's no trial, there's no witnesses, there's no evidence. They just beat him and throw him in prison. Verse 16, when Jeremiah had come to the dungeon cells and remained there many days, King Zedekiah sent for him and received him. And the king questioned him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? And so here Zedekiah hears that he's in prison. He doesn't stop his officials in what they're doing. Instead, he summons him secretly and he asks what is the Lord saying? Is there any word from the Lord? But remember, we already know up front that him and all of his officials will not listen to the word of the Lord, and Jeremiah knows it as well. But notice Jeremiah responds, There is, and then he said, You shall be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon. Now this has been the same message that Jeremiah has given on dozens if not hundreds of occasions in Zedekiah's hearing. He doesn't add anything. He doesn't change anything. He just reiterates what he's already said. And maybe Zedekiah is thinking, all right, now that it's costly for Jeremiah, now that he's spent some time in the dungeon, maybe he'll have better news. That's a pretty poor way to think about how prophets function because they're not magicians calling curses down upon the earth, but just the messenger. Apparently, Judea's never heard the saying, don't hate the messenger. They hate Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah here stands his ground. And it's amazing, for as much as Jeremiah struggles in his own confessions and worries and prayers, as much as he deals with fear, when the rubber meets the road in his ministry, he always stands firm. And so he just repeats the same thing he's always said here. Yes, you will be delivered. Verse 18. Jeremiah also said to King Zedekiah, What wrong have I done to you or your servants, this people, that you have put me in prison? Where are your prophets who prophesy to you, saying, The king of Babylon will not come against you and against this land? Now hear please, O my lord the king, and let my humble plea come before you, and do not send me back into the house of Jonathan the secretary, lest I die there. He says one other thing. Why am I in prison? This is unjust and unfair. If you want a message of positive views of the outcome of this, you've got the false prophets that have been saying these things. Suddenly, they're not talking anymore. That's how serious things have gotten in Judea. And he also points out, if you leave me in this prison, just the conditions alone will kill me. And so he humbly asks to be delivered in verse 21. So King Zedekiah gave orders and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guard, and a loaf of bread was given him daily from the Baker Street until the bread of the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. And so he gets an upgrade here from being in the dungeon to more of a form of house arrest. Um, he's given provision day by day, and that's a big deal because remember, Judea, Jerusalem is going to be under siege, and so bread is going to become scarce, but Jeremiah's diet is protected by the king. And so we wonder here how Zedekiah really feels. We see him operating secretly. He does Jeremiah here a favor, um, but as we will see, there's a better, or actually probably a better way to put it, is a worse way to understand Zedekiah's actions here, and it's not out of concern for Jeremiah, but, his, but for himself.
Chapter 38. Now Shephatiah, the son of Mathan, Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, Jukal, the son of Shemiah, Pasher, the son of Mel- uh, Melchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says the Lord, he who stays in the city will die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, the city shall surely be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. And so apparently this house arrest didn't hinder Jeremiah's ministry. Maybe people could still come to visit him. Maybe he could just cry out the windows. Uh, But his ministry continues and his message is basically calling Jerusalem to surrender because this destruction is inevitable. But if they surrender now, their lives will be, it says here, the spoils of war. You know, usually the victor has the spoils, but here he says, you'll get out with a reward if you surrender, namely your life. And so the officials hear about this and they respond in verse four. Then the officials said to the king, let this man be put to death for he's weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of the people, but their harm. So they make two claims here. The first is that the sum total of Jeremiah's ministry right now is to ruin the morale of all of these people who are under siege because what you need to survive a siege is steadfast morale and commitment. But the prophecy of Jeremiah here is calling them to surrender, to slip over the walls and hand themselves over to Babylon, to defect just as he was accused of doing. And he says if they do that, they will spare their lives. But obviously, this is bad for the army if they're trying to survive. The second claim they make is that Jeremiah doesn't have the welfare of the people in mind, but their harm, and that is characteristically false. He is actually the only one who's concerned for the welfare of the city because he knows that the word of God is inevitable and so surrender means their lives being spared, whereas continued siege means starvation, continued siege means uh, destruction at the sword. And so now the officials publicly come to Zedekiah and they say what you should do is put Jeremiah to death. Notice verse 5, King Zedekiah said, behold, he's in your hands for the king can do nothing against you. Now notice Zedekiah is not stating policy there. These officials don't rule above and over the king. The king is the king. What he's saying by this is basically uh, that he's going to allow them to determine policy. He's going to leave them in charge. Uh, He is defecting his responsibilities. And why? Because he's afraid of his officials. Already, I think we get an insight into why he upgraded um, Jeremiah's reservation from dungeon to house arrest. It's because he was afraid of Jeremiah. He knew that he was a man of God. It doesn't lead him to do the right thing, but it does lead him to do a slightly better thing because maybe that will improve things. And it's the same with the officials here. The officials... He just kowtows to and lets them make the decision because he is a coward. He is afraid of them. And so, uh, here in verse 6, they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. So a cistern is a cavernous uh, underground area It's been dug out and then usually covered with limestone or something like that. And it's to collect rainwater uh, and, and it's really valuable in a drought. This one now is out of water except for just the muddy bottom. And it's so large and so deep that they actually have to lower Jeremiah down on a rope. And their plan is just to leave him here to die. Now, there's a parallel in what's going on here that's a little bit interesting, and that is a parallel with the story of Joseph and his brothers. You may remember that just like Jeremiah, there was a decision to put Jeremiah to death, or uh, Joseph to death by his brothers, and then one interceded and said, let's just throw him in a pit instead. And then eventually they end up selling him off to some 
traitors who are passing passing through. Um, but Jeremiah is being treated in the same way. He's being rejected in the same way. And notice the condition is so bad in the cistern. It finishes here in verse 6 by saying, There was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. This is probably the proverbial low place in Jeremiah's life. The worst that he's experienced. No food, no water, no solid ground to even stand on. He's just semi-submerged in the mud and left to die. And then a new character enters the scene in verse 7. When Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house. Okay, so notice who these, this guy is. Not a Jew, not a Judean at all. Instead, he's an Ethiopian who works for the king. Most likely, he's a prisoner of war from an earlier time who was, uh, you know, uh, captured and put in service of the king. He's got a significant role, but he's nonetheless a slave or a servant. And yet, he's the one here who stands up for Jeremiah. And so when he hears that he put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, verse 8. Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. And so he directly challenges the decision of the king, and he says this is wickedness to leave Jeremiah to die like this. He is a prophet. As we see here, Ebed-Melech is a foreigner living in Judea, and unlike all of the brothers that Jeremiah has, all of the Jews who were God's chosen people, he knows God truly and recognizes Jeremiah as God's prophet. There's uh, a subtle critique of the Jews here that even a foreigner in their midst gets the message, and the Jews, God's own people, reject Jeremiah. And so he challenges the king, and notice the king gives over to Ebed-Melech. 2 verse 10, the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, take 30 men with you from here, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. Now make no mistake here, the point of the 30 men is not uh, how many men it would take to lift Jeremiah out of the hole. It is enough men to protect those who were lifting Jeremiah out of the hole because remember, this is a controversial move. And so basically, the king says, if you're going to take Jeremiah, you better go armed. And so he takes 30 men with him, and he says, go ahead and do it, and lift him out before he dies, verse 11. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king, to a wardrobe in the storehouse, and took from there old rags and worn-out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes between your armpits and the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. And they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. And so he's moved back to his old house arrest place. And that's where he stays. Now again... Zedekiah sends for Jeremiah, verse 14. King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Now, there is a good deal of irony in the opening speech that Zedekiah gives here because he's very concerned that Jeremiah would deceive him, that he wouldn't tell him the whole truth. But in actuality, it is Zedekiah who is constantly uh, you know, hiding his own motives and not speaking true. He has no evidence that Jeremiah has done anything but be faithful with him. But it is a characteristic, isn't it, of human beings that based on their own treatment of people, they tend to assume other people act just like they do. And so he is a deceiver, he is deceptive, so he can't imagine that Jeremiah is not the same way. And he feels the need here, not just to make it explicit, but to control the situation. He needs to get the, the promise up front because he feels vulnerable in relationship with other people. 
Now notice how Jeremiah responds in verse 15. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. Jeremiah says, look, there's only two outcomes from a conversation we could have, Zedekiah. If you ask me a question and I answer, either you're going to kill me because I told the truth, or even, you know, best case scenario here is you continue what you've done this whole time is to not listen to me. And so he says, what advantage, what benefit is there for me to say again what I've already said? He says, if I give you counsel, you'll not listen to me. Verse 16, the king Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah. Notice that word secretly. He does it under his breath. He doesn't want it to be known. He won't stand up for Jeremiah publicly, but he is willing to offer him quietly and secretly his life. He swore secretly to Jeremiah, as the Lord lives, who made our souls. I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. And so even here, when he's willing to make a stand for Jeremiah, it's not a public stand, but his concern for his own life, as we'll see, is so severe that he's willing to, to bargain with Jeremiah. Verse 17, Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared, and this city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. Jeremiah says there's two possibilities before you. You can continue on your way. You cannot listen to the Lord. You cannot surrender, but it will cost you your family. It will cost you the city, uh, and ultimately it will cost you your life. Or you can be surrender and be spared. The city will be protected. Your family will be protected. This is a message that Jeremiah has already communicated to Zedekiah, but now, you know, the fire is burning hotly. Now is the time for decision-making. And so he lays these two choices before Zedekiah. Notice what he says in verse 19. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Gedeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them and they deal cruelly, cruelly with me. Notice here his fear. His fear is that those who have already defected to Babylon, who would resent Zedekiah, because remember, he's the king that got them into this mess. Although he was placed over Judea by Nebuchadnezzar himself, he's now rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. So every child who has starved, every soldier who has died, this is all blood on his hands. And those who were smart enough earlier on to see the writing on the wall and realize that Babylon would win and surrender in advance, they are going to want his revenge. He says, I'm afraid of them. The truth is, Zedekiah is afraid of everyone. He's afraid of his officials. He's afraid of Jeremiah. He's afraid of the people as a whole. And so because of that, he's afraid to do the right thing, to obey the Lord. And Zedekiah is assured here by Jeremiah. Verse 20, Jeremiah said, You shall not be given to them, Obey now the voice of the Lord in what I say to you, and it shall be well with you, and your life shall be spared. There is one person who Zedekiah doesn't rightly fear, and that's the Lord. You know, Jesus tells uh, his disciples in, the, in one of the Gospels uh, that they shouldn't fear those who can take their life, who can kill their bodies, and that's the end of what they can do. But instead, fear him who, after you're dead, determines your eternal fate, heaven or hell, judgment or, uh, you know, blessing. Uh, and it's important to remember that Jesus is not a threatening person. He's not saying that in a threatening way, but to be realistic, he's trying to give us a reality check and say, what should you fear most of all? And that's Zedekiah's problem. His fear is disordered. And so because he doesn't rightly fear the Lord, he's afraid of everyone else. When in actuality here, God's word, God's promise is strong enough to protect him from all others who might be on the board, who might be involved in his life. And so he says, obey, and 
the Lord promises to take care of you, verse 21, but if you refuse to surrender, this is the vision which the Lord has shown me. Behold, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah were being led out to the officials, to the king of Babylon, and were saying, so Jeremiah says, I've seen a vision, and here's what it is. If you don't obey the Lord, I see all the women of your household. That's, that's Zedekiah's mother, that's his wife and his concubines, that's all of his daughters. And he sees them being, you know, dragged out of the house and marched off to Babylon and listen to their words. Your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. And so the criticism here, Jeremiah envisions the women of Zedekiah's household making, is that he played with the wrong team, that he trusted the wrong people, that as soon as, uh, as he does what they want him to do by holding out and continuing on, as soon as things get hard, they're going to abandon him. And notice the image there, now that your feet are stuck in the mud. We can imagine where Jeremiah got that imagery, right? That's where Jeremiah was, but he says, Zedekiah, you're the one who's about to find yourself buried, sinking in the mud of a cistern and completely abandoned. And so he gives him a significant warning here. And remember, earlier he says, if Zedekiah, if you trust the word of the Lord, if you hand yourself over now, then your household will be spared. And so it's not just his own fate that he's determining, but the fate of all he's responsible for, including the city of Jerusalem. And here it's those women, the women of his household in the vision, that criticize him for making the right choice. In fact, look what will happen to them in verse 23. All your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans, and you yourself shall not escape from their hand, but shall be seized by the king of Babylon, and this city shall be burned with fire. Now again, Zedekiah has an opportunity to obey. He has an opportunity to listen. He has an opportunity to repent. But we've already been told up front that him and his officials would not do so. And so notice how that plays out this time in verse 24. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Let no one know of these words, and you shall not die. Now, to be honest, Zedekiah there is changing the rules. He already promised Jeremiah his life if he would just be honest with him, but now he adds a condition. Again, we see Zedekiah controlling because he's so insecure in this situation. And so he says, all right, I will protect you, but you're not allowed to tell anyone that we've talked, that we've had a conversation. Again, he refuses to be publicly identified with Jeremiah Instead, he wants to continue to just quietly and privately act. And so, he says, Let no one know the words, and you shall not die. Verse 25, If the officials hear that I have spoken with you, and come to you and say to you, Tell us what you said to the king, and what the king said to you, Hide nothing from us, and we shall not put you to death. Okay, again, notice that he's envisioning here other people behaving like he does. And so their incentive is, you can trust us, Jeremiah. Tell us the truth and we'll keep you alive. Um, but that's no different than what Zedekiah has done. Uh, he sees other people as being deceptive and manipulative, and so he has to control every outcome. He has to imagine how the officials are going to respond. He has to be like a chess player and plan in advance. Uh, and that is the danger of being a deceiver. That is the danger um, of, of disobedience and rebellion and manipulation and all these things is eventually you are the least secure person um, because you have to manage every outcome. As opposed to Jeremiah who basically just has to trust in the Lord and no matter what other people plot against him, God has promised to take care of him. And so he says, if the officials come, don't tell them that we had this conversation. Instead, he says, just tell him, verse 26, then you shall say to them, I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan to die there. Which again is a true statement. Earlier on, that was Jeremiah's plea. And so he says, just tell him about that part. Keep the rest to yourself. Now, even though Zedekiah is driven by fear, he is right about his officials, and that's exactly what happens. They do come to Jeremiah. 
Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and asked him, and he answered them as the king had instructed him. So they stopped speaking with him, for the conversation had not been overheard. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard until the day that Jerusalem was taken. Now, here we see that Jeremiah was absolutely right in his suspicions. Remember what he said at the beginning of the chapter? You want me to say everything and hold nothing back, but either you will kill me for what I say, or you will not listen to me. And it is that second option that takes place, and so Zedekiah continues on in his own way and does not hear the word of the Lord. And that leads us to the end of the story of Jerusalem in Jeremiah with its destruction in chapter 39. Look at verse 1. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. So what's described here is an 18-month siege where Jerusalem is not allowed to come out and where they just basically starve Jerusalem and also they set up their siege works. And after 18 months of waiting and working, they break through the wall and they enter into Jerusalem, just as Jeremiah had said, verse 3. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. Now, remember, this is a fulfillment of Jeremiah's words early on in the book of Jeremiah, where he said that the great officials of Babylon would come and sit in the center of Jerusalem. And why are they sitting here? It's because the battle is over, the war is over, and they sit here in dominion over Jerusalem as a conquered city. And then we have the names of the officials. We have Nergal Sar Ezer, Samgar Nebu, Sar Sekim, the Rabseris, Nergal Sar Ezer, the Rabmag, with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw him, they fled going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden, through the gate between the two walls, and they went towards the Arabah. So Jeremiah has given a way of escape to Zedekiah, surrender. He doesn't take it, and now he tries to escape on his own. And so he abandons his people. He doesn't go down with the ship like a captain should, but he abandons his people and tries to sneak out the back door of Jerusalem, but it doesn't work. Verse 5, But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them, and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. So he starts running for uh, the eastern side of Israel through the, the mountainous path, the Jericho road, but he is captured in Jericho. When they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. Now remember, Zedekiah is not just a king of another people group. He is a vassal king who rebelled against his Lord. And so he sits here and is judged by Nebuchadnezzar. And notice the consequences for his rebellion. Verse 6, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. All of these things could have been avoided if Zedekiah had chosen to obey and surrender to God's will, but because he held out, it cost him his sons, it cost him his cabinet, it cost him the city of Jerusalem, and it also cost him his sight. And so he's blinded and bound in chains and dragged off to Babylon. Verse 9, Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. Now remember, this is the third time that people have been taken to Babylon, uh, one in the days of Jehoahaz, and then again in the days of Jehoiachin, and now basically the rest of the occupants of Jerusalem, even those ones who defected, are marched off to Babylon. Verse 10, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing, 
and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. So he leaves an incredibly small remnant of the poorest of the poor and leaves them in charge in some of the outlying land outside of Jerusalem, abandoned vineyards and farms, and says, here, stay here, take care of this. And as we'll see, he appoints a new governor, Gedaliah, to watch over these people. But there's really nothing left. It's just you know, it's just a couple hundred people maybe at most and the poorest of the poor that are left in the land. Everyone else is deported to Babylon. Now, who is also in these group of poor people, as we'll see, uh, is Jeremiah and Baruch. Uh, but notice how they get there. Verse 11, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, take him, Look after him well and do him no harm, but do deal with him as he tells you. So notice, Nebuchadnezzar knows who Jeremiah is. And that shouldn't surprise us because earlier in Jeremiah, he had sent prophecies in the form of a letter to those already dwelling in Babylon, the ones that were deported in Jeconiah's days, uh, excuse me, in Jehoiachin's days. Uh, he sends them a letter. That letter would have been read publicly in the streets in the capital city of Babylon, uh, and so he knows that Jeremiah had spoken uh, of Babylon's victory, that he had commanded people to seek the good of Babylon. And honestly, as we'll see, he probably knows as well that Jeremiah has prophesied the destruction of Babylon. But for now, he's an ally, and he also probably respects him as a validated prophet. Again, a little bit ironic considering his own people have rejected his message, but Nebuchadnezzar, this evil pagan king, receives him and respects him. And so he says, do with him what he wants to do. So verse 13, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, uh, Nebus Hasban, the Rabsaris, Nergal Ezer, the Rabmag, and all the chief officers of the king of Babylon sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard they entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he lived among the people. And so he ends up being a part of this poor remnant and staying in the land as well. Notice this, verse 15, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Abed-Melech the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm, and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day, but I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of men whom you are afraid. So because Abed-Melech is a true believer, because he courageously defended and protected Jeremiah, God promises to protect Abed-Melech as well. Verse 18, I will surely save you. And you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. And so again, we get a contrast. Here, the people of Jerusalem are destroyed because of their lack of trust in the Lord. And then this random Ethiopian household slave of the king, Abed-Melech, believes. And because of that, he is safe. Chapter 40. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, when he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were beginning uh, being exiled in Babylon. Now, notice here, we dial back the story and we get a little bit more details about how it was that Nebuzaradan found Jeremiah, and he finds him in the rank and file of those who were being marched off to Babylon. And it's only because of the command of Nebuchadnezzar that he spots Jeremiah and sets him free. And so, verse 2, the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said, because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice, this thing has come upon you. Now behold, I release you today from the chains of your hands. In other words, he says, you were right. You called it. You clearly represent the Lord, and he's clearly at work. Therefore, I'm releasing you. And then he gives him two choices. He says, if it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I'll look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it's good and right to go. If you remain, 
Then returned to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, who the king of Babylon appointed governor of the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people, or go wherever you think it's right to go. So he gives him two, almost three choices here. One, he says, come with me, and I'll be personally responsible with you in Babylon. Two, he says, stay here and stay in the midst of the people, and you'll be under the care of Gedaliah, the governor that Nebuchadnezzar's appointed. Or three, he says, or take you know another option and go wherever you want to go. And what's amazing here is that Jeremiah chooses not to go with the Babylonians who respect him, but to stay with those who rejected his message and are still living in the land. I find this to be an amazing transformation of how God works in our lives. Because remember, at the opening of Jeremiah, Jeremiah doesn't want the job. He's the reluctant prophet who says, I don't want to do this ministry. I don't want to uh, bang my head against the wall that is Judea this whole time. And we watch throughout Jeremiah as he wrestles with that calling uh, and laments that calling, and yet here he chooses to continue it and to stay with the people who have rejected him. This is why, although it begins as the reluctant prophet in Jeremiah 1, by the end we know him as the weeping prophet. And remember, he composes the next book in your Bible, Lamentations, to just mourn the destruction of Jerusalem. It's not just that he's been given a ministry, but now the ministry has taken hold of his heart, and he loves these people even though they have treated him so poorly, and so he chooses to stay with them. It finishes in verse 5 saying, So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present and let him go, and Jeremiah went to Gedaliah the son of Ahikam at Mizpah and lived with him among the people who were left in the land. When all the captains of the forces of the open country and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah the son of Ahikam governor in the land, and he had committed to him men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land, who had not been taken to exile in Babylon, they went to Gedaliah at Mizpah. And so these men are, uh, are soldiers in Judah's army who were caught outside of Jerusalem during the siege and have just been hiding out and hanging out at this time. But now that they know that the siege is over, that Jerusalem is defeated, and that Gedaliah has been appointed, they're regathered under his command. And so they meet him in Mizpah, and here we have a list of who they are. Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, Johanan, the son of Kariah, Sariah, the son of Tanmutheth, uh, the son of Ephi, the uh, Netophathelite, Jezaniah, the son of Machathite, and their men. Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, swore to their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. And so they're effectively given pardon here. The war is over. Now is the time for peace. Now is the time for settling in. And they're welcomed and promised protection by Gedaliah. As for me, verse 10, I will dwell at Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who will come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil and store them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Likewise, when all the Judeans who were in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and in other lands heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and an appointed Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, his governor over them, then all the Judeans returned from all the places uh, to the land of Judah, to Gedaliah at Mizpah, and they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. And so these are all people who lived outside of Jerusalem, and when the siege was inevitable, when they heard that the armies of Babylon were coming to surround Jerusalem, instead of fleeing into Jerusalem for protection, they flew, fled into the wilderness and the surrounding nations for protection. And they, just like the generals, knowing that the war is over, now come and resettle into the land under Governor Gedaliah. Verse 13, Now Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Do you know that Balas, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, to take your life? Now remember, Ishmael is one of these generals, but he's been hired by a foreign king, the king of the Ammonites, to assassinate Gedaliah. Now, this is probably just insult to injury. They're just so against the Jews, they see this as an opportunity to do even more damage, and they're willing to risk offending 
the king of Babylon to do it. And here the other generals warn, hey, there is a wolf in our midst. Ishmael is plotting against your life. He's been hired by Balas, the king of the Ammonites. And Gedaliah is told this up front. But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, would not believe them. Now, we're not told why this is the case. He just rejects this message and says, I'm not worried about it. That's not true. And that, as we'll see, is unfortunate. Verse 15. Then Johanan, the son of Kariah, spoke secretly to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Please let me go and strike down Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, and no one will know it. Why should you take your life so that all the Judeans who are gathered about you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah would perish? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, said to Johanan, the son of Kariah, you shall not do this thing, for you're speaking falsely of Ishmael. And so whether publicly or privately, he is unwilling to hear uh, this negative view of Ishmael. And because of that, uh, he is caught off guard by this man who's plotting his destruction. Chapter 41. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, the son of Elishama of the royal family, one of the chief officers of the king, came with ten men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam at Mizpah. As they ate bread together to get there at Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, and the ten men with him rose up and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword, and killed him, whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. And so notice this plot is carried out as Ishmael brings ten armed soldiers to have dinner uh, in the household of Gedaliah, and during the meal they rise up and they slaughter the whole household. Now, when it says here that they ate bread together, not only does that show how uh, you know unexpected Gedaliah was of this, uh, but it also makes the crime all the more heinous. Remember, this is a Middle Eastern culture where hospitality is very important. And so eating bread with another person is not just being in the same place at the same time, or even just a cordial if invitation. It's an expression of friendship and community. That's why the psalmist uh, points out you know, that he who ate bread with me has lifted his heel against me. It makes the deception so much more horrible. And we'll see that that's the type of man that Ishmael is. But unfortunately, Gedaliah didn't listen to the warnings, and now the plot is carried off, and he is killed. And not just him, but verse 3, Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah, and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. And so he kills many of those in Mizpah under Gedaliah's care, as well as the Babylonian soldiers that have left behind to kind of keep watch on things, which is a big deal and a scary act against, you know, the new reigning empire of the world, Babylon. Verse 4, on the day after the murder of Gedaliah, before anyone knew of it, 80 men arrived from Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria. Okay. Now, notice these 80 men come from these three cities, Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria, and they have something really important in common, and it's not just that they begin with the letter S. Okay, All three of these cities are cities of the northern tribes of Israel. Now, re remember, a hundred years before the ministry of Jeremiah, Israel falls to the Assyrians, and they're deported. But during the days of Josiah, he kind of expands the boundaries of Judea back into the land of Israel, and some Jews resettle there. And so these are ones that have been living at a long distance away from Jerusalem, and therefore kept safe from the siege of Babylon. But because they have been reconnected, with the Judean rulership, with the line of David, they've also been reconnected with the temple. And as we'll see, they come here in mourning, and they're mourning the destruction of Jerusalem, as well as the destruction of the temple. And so they come, and it says they come with their beards shaved, and their clothes torn, and their bodies gashed. All of those being symbols of mourning. But notice that the last one, the fact that they've gashed themselves, that shows that these people may worship the God of Israel, but they are sectarian. They also worship other gods. And uh, gashing was a sign of mourning that Leviticus strictly condemns because it's tied to the worship of other gods. You may remember that when Elijah goes up against the prophets of Baal and things aren't working out for them, they begin to cut themselves. 
Notice also that they come bringing grain offerings and incense to present at the temple of the Lord. Now, what's missing from their offerings there? There's no animals, right? They don't bring any animal sacrifices, and that's because the temple uh, has been ransacked, so there's no more bronze altar. It's been ransacked, so there's no more priesthood, right? They've been marched off. And so they come with just grain offerings and incense, uh, because that's all that can be offered. And really here, it's not even to worship at the temple. The temple is destroyed, but to mourn its passing. Uh, and so they bring these things in. In verse 6, Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, came out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he came. And so notice what's going on here. Uh, Ishmael has a problem. He needs to commit this crime, and he's killed everybody around so that there's no living witnesses, and his plan is to get away. But before he gets away, here comes 80 eyewitnesses. And so what he does is he comes out to them and pretends like everything is normal. Now, if you have an older translation, it may say that the 80 men who were coming into Mizpah were weeping as they came, but it's more likely here that it's Ishmael who's weeping. Remember that mourning in a Middle Eastern sense is not just something that overwhelms you and you feel. It's something you practice intentionally and purposefully. And so he comes out weeping and joins in their public mourning. But again, it's a deception. He just needs to get them close enough to take care of, just like he took care of Gedaliah. And so he goes out and he invites them into the city where Gedaliah is. Come into Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. And when they came into the city, Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, and the men with him slaughtered them and cast them into a cistern. And so he kills all of these new eyewitnesses and adds them to the pile of the dead, hiding them in a cistern, just like Jeremiah was kept in, underground, invisible, nobody will find for days and days or maybe weeks and weeks. But, verse 8, there were ten men among them who said to Ishmael, do not put us to death. For we have stores of wheat, barley, oil, and honey hidden in the fields. So he refrained and did not put them to death with their companions. So ten of the eighty are spared because they say, Hey, before we came in view of Mizpah, we hid some resources, we hid some provisions, and you can have them. And that's of interest to Ishmael, right? Because he's about to run all the way back to protection under the king of Ammon. And so having food ready and prepared for travel uh, is his exit to a safe escape. And so he lets them go. And why are we told about these ten anyways? It's because these are the eyewitnesses, right? They're the ones who are left standing, who know what happened and survive to tell the tale. Verse 9, Now the cistern, into which Ishmael had thrown all the bodies of the men whom he'd struck down along with Gedaliah, was the large cistern that King Asa had made for defense against Basha the king of Israel. Ishmael the son of Netaniah filled it with the slain. So notice here the narrator says, if you're familiar with it, you know how big this hole is, and it became just this huge mass grave because of this slaughter. Verse 10, Then Ishmael took captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters, and all the people who were left at Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim. Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, took them captive and set out to cross over to the Ammonites. So he takes the few remaining people here, mostly women and children, and he puts them in chains, and he's going to take them as the spoils of his attack back to Ammon, uh, and into slavery. But when Johanan, the son of Kariah, now remember, he's the one who warned Gedaliah earlier about Ishmael's plot. And so as soon as he hears about it, he's ready to respond. When Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the leaders of the forces with him heard of the evil that Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, had done, they took all their men and went to fight against Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, and they came upon him at the great pool that is in Gibeon. And when all the people who were there with Ishmael saw Johanan the son of Kariah and all the leaders of the forces with him, they rejoiced. So all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan the son of Kariah. And so when they see this approaching small uh, group of armed men, remember uh, Ishmael only has ten men with him, so he's outnumbered significantly, and they realize that they can run into the safety of these people. And then Ishmael has a choice to make. He can either turn and fight and try and save his spoils, 
or he can cut his losses and run, and that's what he decides to do. And so here in verse 15, Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. Then Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the leaders of the forces with him took from Mizpah all the rest of the people whom he recovered from Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, after he'd struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, soldiers, women, children, and eunuchs, whom Johanan brought back from Gibeon. And they went and stayed at Geruth Chimnim near Bethlehem. So they don't return to Mizpah, but instead they go south of Jerusalem where Bethlehem is, and we're told why there in verse 17, intending to go to Egypt. And so they decide not to stay settled in the land, but instead they're going to march all the way to Egypt, and they're staying temporarily in Bethlehem. And notice their reasoning, verse 18, because the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them, because Ishmael the son of Netaniah had struck down Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. So their fear here is that the king of Babylon is going to hear about what's happened, and he's not really going to care who committed this crime. He's just going to take it out on the survivors. I mean, recognize that he had no significant reason or justification to leave these people behind except mercy. And so you can imagine him saying, this isn't even worth the trouble. Now you tell me the governor I appointed and the soldiers I left have been killed? It'll be easier just to get rid of you so that I have no future problems. And so they're afraid of how he'll take the news, and so they decide just to get out of Dodge, to run away, and to resettle in Egypt now, why are we still following this story? Wouldn't you expect the book of Jeremiah to have ended with the destruction of Jerusalem? Because significantly, that's where Jeremiah's prophecy ends. But unfortunately here, we get to follow the people further because as we'll see next week, they're given another choice to choose between obeying God or going their own way and being... Um, consistent with their character so far, even after everything Jeremiah has said has come true, even after God's judgment has been poured out undeniably on his people, they will still stubbornly not listen to Jeremiah. And so unfortunately, we have this epilogue that we're working through right now to show how bad uh, things really are in the hearts of the Judeans. And I think it's easy for us to shake our head and just think, how can anyone be so foolish and so resistant? But I think we forget that this isn't merely a story about the Jews and the Judeans, you know, during this time. It's really about the human condition. It's our heart that is concerning, and we are totally capable, aren't we, of a stubbornness like this, of this sort of steadfast resistance towards God. And that's what makes Jeremiah's words a few chapters earlier in chapter 31 so significant. As God says, I'm going to do a new thing, and I'm going to take that heart of stone, I'm going to take that stubbornness, and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. Whereas I gave you clear but external commandments, and you did not keep them, now I'm going to internalize my law in your heart. Or in the words of Ezekiel, now I'm going to give you my very spirit, and I'm going to work out from within a new work and make you a people who desire to obey, who effectively obey, uh, so that I will be your God and you will be my people. And we are all, in Jesus Christ, the recipients of that blessing. And so the only thing that sets us apart from these people uh, is that God has done this incredible work in our hearts through our reception of Jesus Christ that has softened our hearts. And so that's something we can rejoice in and be grateful for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much tonight, uh, Lord, that you didn't leave us in our stubbornness. Uh, but instead, you had a plan from the beginning of the ages to do something about this, to remedy this human condition of hard-heartedness uh, by sending your Son to live the life that we refuse to live, that we are incapable of living up to, and then die the death that we deserve for all of our shortcomings, and then freely offer us salvation because of what he has done, simply available in faith by faith. 
We praise you for that tonight. We thank you for that. And we know even now, Lord, even though we have the new man in Jesus Christ, we still have the old man. We still have that stubbornness. We still have that resistance. We still have that rebellion. But we pray, Lord, that you would continue to take captive more and more ground in our hearts and that we would be like Abed-Melech. We would be like this eunuch who trusts in you and courageously stands on your word and because of that need not fear anything else. We thank you for your goodness. and We thank you for your word. And we pray tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.